Wow. All right. So, Discipline and Punish, part two, but also episode 100. So, this went by quick. Uh, less than a couple of years and we already got 100 up, so that's good. Uh, but for now, Discipline and Punish, but again, even before that, I should say that this will be found on Podbean and uh, iTunes, so you can find links for that in the description, as well as the Patreon account that any amount there that you can add or you can uh, pledge would be great. I understand if not, uh, but if you know you still can't, it'd be worth checking out because there are some funny jokes embedded in there. But yeah, without further ado, on with episode 100. Uh, now this is the stuff that I think most people interested in this text or forced to read it in academia. Uh, this is the part that most will have to know or that most people would be interested in. So some of the key ideas we run through here are uh, docile bodies and the panopticon, including other ones like the carceral state and stuff like that, uh, which are all big ideas, especially anyone going through university right now, wanting to have a better grasp of this stuff. Hopefully I can be of some help. But here we begin with docile bodies. So this is about chapter five in my version, which I think is probably the version everyone has, where he begins with the image of a soldier. So a soldier for Foucault is someone who internalizes order to some extent. Now I don't mean order in a kind of abstract sense like the social contract or the law or anything like that. The soldier is someone who is controlled to such an extent that every single one of their movements are highly calculated. Like for anyone that's seen Full Metal Jacket, the line four inches from your chest would certainly uh, mean something to you. Um, there are so many specific movements that have to be so carefully executed that a soldier could hardly be thought of as having a kind of autonomy, right? Everything they do is highly controlled and regimented. So he uses this image to make a broader characterization of society at large. So this comes about through a number of different ways that we'll go through here, but to just kind of give a like a preface to them, uh, things like the panopticon, where people, under fear of being watched, regulate themselves into acting in accordance with the gaze they assume is there, or they meet the expectations that they assume are there. Now this has an effect on people. This renders them docile. So docile being, um, I guess, non-insubordinate, that is, someone who is subordinate, someone who is, I think calm would be uh, a safe adjective to put in there, uh, but is someone that is willing to follow instruction, someone who is malleable to the will of someone in authority. So he gives us a little bit of a definition here, where he says that a, a docile body is one that may be subjected, used, transformed, and improved. Now this has an interesting effect. And anyone who's interested in the topic of subjectivity will find this um, interesting. Because to be subject to a gaze, to be subject to an authority, means two possible things. Firstly, it constitutes you as a subject, which comes with certain benefits, a certain degree of autonomy. Whereas on the other hand, it renders you a kind of object, ironically, because it makes you the subject of someone else's gaze, kind of controlling you 
So the way I like to imagine this is like a child in a sandbox or anyone in a sandbox really. Now in the sandbox for the child there might be limitless possibility with what can be done with sand especially if you include something like water. So they are confined to the sandbox yet there doesn't seem to be a limit to it. But anyone looking from the outside certainly sees that the sandbox has a limit. And that limit actually, uh, I guess, limits what the child can do in the sandbox, thereby limiting the, their potential as subjects. Yet, it is also by virtue of that sandbox that they are given that kind of creative subjectivity. So Foucault is kind of illustrating it in this way, where on the one hand, people are subject to a certain gaze that makes them subordinate to that gaze, that makes them malleable to that gaze, that is bendable, that is um, adaptable to that gaze. But at the same time, it grants people a certain degree of autonomy. So in order for this kind of disciplinary apparatus to work for Foucault, it needs to look at things individually. So we kind of got a glimpse of that in the first episode, when there was a shift from looking at people as being, you know, criminals or not, to, you know, taking into account everyone's personal history, taking into account whether or not someone might have other kinds of ailments, like, um, like mental, um, mental disorders that need to be taken account of, uh, you know, accounting for people's like home situations, accounting for people's status and class and all that, that Foucault says presents a very interesting turn in the way that discipline is organized because it doesn't just cast or just cover the general population with a big blanket and says this is how we uh, administer punishment. Now it looks at each individual case and it is through that that each individual internalizes themselves as being a subject, an individual autonomous subject. Now Foucault wants us to come out of that to recognize that this subjectivity is not bestowed upon us in a benevolent way, that is, it doesn't come to us in a good way. Instead, it is something that is given to us to better control us. Now, the process by which this happens is, is really complicated. And I want to say here that over the next few chapters, Foucault gives us many lists. Now, for anyone familiar with Foucault's thought, he likes to really delineate his approach in numbered lists. So he gives us like four different reasons why something happened or three different reasons and then explains each of them. Uh, where there are really, you know, in some cases really minuscule differences between, you know, one point and another. So while what I'm going to be doing for the rest here might seem like I'm reading like a grocery list, uh, it, that is the case because that is, is exactly what we're presented with here and I can't very well skip it. So what I'm going to do is try to be as clear, precise, and quick with them as I can. But he gives us a kind of roadmap as to how these docile bodies were formed. Now, what I will say before then is that for him, these docile bodies came into being when people were rendered or sought to be made productive. Now, what does that mean? Well, when we, we take a factory, for example, what the factory owner wants to do is to maximize the productivity of the individual while minimizing the kind of cost behind it, right? You know, 
Marxist theory right there. Uh, but for Foucault, what he says is that this possibility isn't simply the product of a kind of capitalist mentality. That is, it's not the product of a desire for profit. While he does give that a lot of attention, he says that there was something else going on. And he says that this emphasis on docile bodies or this move towards docile bodies really came about, and he says in quotes here, uh, when the art of the human body was born, which is a, an interesting claim because, you know, of course, the body's been around forever. How can we claim the body was just, or the art of the body was just born? Well, what he means by this is that suddenly with all the kind of expert medical gazes that were placed on the body, it gave the body a kind of status. It gave the body a kind of essence that it didn't always have. Now with this moment, the body could be reduced to infinitesimal little parts, right? Physiologically, you know, people knew what was going on in the body. Therefore, they could have a better understanding of how it worked. And by virtue of that, they were able to then um, kind of construct new and effective ways to make that body productive. So knowing what, you know, the human body was capable of, then suddenly people could optimize its productivity. So this might seem to be like the same as the Marxist thing that is trying to maximize it. But Foucault says that what Marx forgets or if Marx wasn't aware of is that there were these other mechanisms going on that don't necessarily have a link to capital in the way that Marx would, would like to suggest. And that these forms of control in many ways antedate or they come before the introduction of capital. And capital just used them. And of course, Foucault says that he used them en masse, and that's something we have to consider. But anyways, that was a little bit of a longer preface than I wanted. He says that this came about through four different mechanisms, or four different mechanisms kind of operated to uh, create these docile bodies, and they are as follows. Number one, through the art of distributions. Number two, for the control of activity. Number three, the organization of genesis, and number four, the composition of forces. Now, each of these four, and really bear with me, I'm going to repeat them often so that, you know, you don't have to worry about remembering them. These four all participate together to create these docile bodies. And they each correspond to another kind of, um, another kind of mode of individuality that must all kind of work in harmony to create these docile bodies. So let me repeat them here, including the other titles they have. So these four ways are the art of distributions, that was the first one, that Foucault says is the cellular uh, mode of individuality. There's the control of activity, which he calls the organic mode of individuality. Thirdly, the organization of, organization of genesis, which he calls the uh, genetic uh, mode of individuality. And fourth, the composition of forces, which he calls the uh, combination of individuality. So I want to read a little section that explains these other four titles, that is the cellular, the organic, the genetic, and the combination. So he says that it is the cellular, which is by the play of spatial distribution, it is organic by the coding of activities, it is genetic by the accumulation of time, it is combinatory by the composition of forces. And in doing so, it operates four great techniques, 
it draws up tables, it prescribes movements, it imposes exercises. Lastly, in order to obtain the combination of forces, it arranges tactics. Tactics, the art of constructing, with located bodies, coded activities, and trained aptitudes, mechanisms in which the product of the various forces is increased by their calculated combination are no doubt the highest form of disciplinary practice. So that's how the four of them organize around one another to produce this effect of docile bodies. So now let's move into each one of them one by one. So number one, the art of distributions. So traditionally, if we thought of confinement, what was meant by distribution was a very kind of rigid uh, closing off people from you know, society where you, know, you would confine them in solitary confinement and that would be it. They would be away from society at large. Now with the introduction of other various institutions like prisons, schools, work sh or factories, you know, anything like that, what we see is the creation of zones where these disciplinary effects are meant to exert themselves over the people within them. So when you enter uh, a hospital, you are like if you have an illness, you are coded through that illness and various different uh, mechanisms are then operated on you because of that illness, all with the goal of rendering you normal again. Now with this kind of framework, there's a steady um, kind of bifurcation that is a split between the inside and the outside, right? So you have those people in the walls, in the institution that are markedly different from those outside of the walls. So, so far, this, these art of, this art of distributions is working on a kind of broader scale. So what does it mean to belong to an institution? What does it mean to exist within walls that are trying to confine you? So he adds to this that the disciplinary mechanisms that he's trying to delineate, that is, he's trying to explain here, aren't nearly as rigid. In fact, he says that what we see are the, um, the creation of as many spaces of confinement as there are bodies. Now, this relates very well with the idea of the individuality, where people are seen as being, you know, individual um, entities that need their individual care. So therefore, we need individual treatments of that body. So instead of there being large macro spaces for the confinement of people and their control, now there are specific ones where each person goes into their specific camp and they are dealt with in that way. But still, we don't really get the full form of the art of distributions yet. Foucault says that it develops even further as soon as we introduce a kind of administrative mechanism to this individual separation of people in accordance with their specific needs, with their specific quote-unquote problem. Now you introduce a certain administrative effect that is meant to kind of survey, that is meant to control, that is meant to um, a code where these people are, what they should be doing, uh, you know, what would constitute their re-entering abnormality, that is, you know, having agreed upon what is normal and are able to then condemn anything that falls outside of that range. Only with that, that we move a little bit closer to this full form of the art of distributions for the production of docile bodies. So this only comes to the fore, this only gets fully developed. Again, we're working under the art of distributions here. When we see the introduction 
to this administration a kind of hierarchization or what he calls a kind of um, cellular power, which is an interesting term and only having reading it now for the, I don't know how many times I've read this book, two or three times, uh, did this really stick out to me, this idea of cellular power, uh, because it's not a term that really floats around Foucauldian discourse all that much. Um, but anyways, it's interesting. And what it suggests is that in order for the, you know, the art of distributions to have the effect of producing docile bodies, there needs to be a control administered by some kind of space or from some kind of people. Now, those people are, let's take a factory, for example. Those people are the supervisors who are then watched by the managers, who are then watched by the, you know, owners, who are then watched by the shareholders, you know, anything like that, that work in this kind of compartmentalized way to control very specifically the people underneath, to mandate, to make sure that they all operate in order. Now that propels us here from the art of distributions to the second one, titled The Control of Activity. And this is the, um, the control of time. So this goes through a few different steps. Uh, firstly, the time of day must be strictly administered. Uh, so, you know, people get up in the morning, they must eat breakfast, starting eating breakfast by 6.30, uh, by 7, they have to be in, you know, church for mass, and then 7.30, they have to, um, they have to show up for their kind of work duty, um, at, at noon, they eat lunch again, at 12.30, they have half an hour for recreation, then at, at, at 1, they have back to work duty till 5, and then dinner, and so on and so forth, where everything is very specifically, uh, calculated, very specifically mapped out. Now, to this, he adds what he calls the temporal elaboration of the act, or what he calls the um, anat anatomo-chronological schema. So this is not just the mapping of the entire day, but the mapping of the specific movements of the body. So again, here, he uses the example of the soldier. Now, the soldier, uh, specifically soldiers marching, where they are to march on beat, and that beat is, you know, uh, determined by time. So it's in that way that time becomes internalized by the body itself, where, let's say, you're, part of your labor is using a pickaxe, like it might be, uh, you might be working that pickaxe to a certain chant or to, to a certain rhythm that is meant to kind of keep you uh, in a state of, you kind of fall into the rhythm and lose sight of yourself in that process. And what this creates is a kind of correspondence between the body and the gesture, what he, what he calls the gesture, or the act that is being done, which is meant to optimize the body's productive capacity. So there is no surprise then that there is an extension from the rhythm of the body to the rhythm between the subject, you know, as we've understood it now, the person being subjected to this authority, between the subject and the object they're using. So if they're using um, um, a gun, like in the case of the military or a soldier, then there's a kind of dynamic interplay between that object and the subject. Now, anyone familiar with uh, cybernetics would perhaps have something to say about this because the foundations of cybernetics is to kind of disturb the supposed split between you know the objects people use and those people 
where with a dynamic interplay between the two, you can produce much more effective uh, results, much more productive uh, capabilities on the part of both the object and the subject. Now, all of these kind of controls over time and the regulation of the body are not meant to suppress or repress. They are not meant to kind of control the body into not doing things. It is instead making the body do things, but making it do things in the most productive way it can. So he creates a distinction here between, you know, the timetable, which was a very rigid, uh, calculated thing that was more, um, more a caution against what the person can't do than what they can do, versus this discipline, which wants people to proliferate, which wants people to be productive, but they want that productive productivity to be optimized. And it is with this shift that we see uh, the shift from what he calls the mechanical body, that is the body that is very rigid, um, kind of set out through various mechanisms, to the natural body, a body that internalizes the authority imposed upon it as being natural, giving birth to the idea of themselves as natural. So there's very little chance then to question it. And that moves us into number three, the organization of genesis, which is essentially the capitalization of this time. So if there's an organization of time going on, this organization of time needs to be very well calculated so that every single um, event in the day is very clearly split from another one. And uh, they must try to restrict one, you know, bleeding into the other or two overlapping because then that creates confusion. And that isn't necessary because it has to be as simple as possible, lest, you know, the rhythm gets disturbed and people fall outside, fall out of their kind of habitual um, kind of, you know, regular routine, their movement, and therefore they're thereby become unproductive. And it is only with a kind of increasing in the complexity of the act itself should the uh, time or should the organization of time itself get complicated. But that can only come through uh, various procedures through each the person, the body being acted upon, internalizes the um, internalizes their docility as it goes on. So they become more and more docile as things get more and more complex so that the complexity does not take them outside of that docility. And because this risk is always there, then there's the introduction of a kind of debriefing or a kind of analysis uh, or studying of those people or examination to make sure that they are staying within the parameters of the system. So they'll get, you know, ask questions if they feel like they're, uh, if the supervisor feels like the person is falling out of line, you know, they'll be examined, cross-examined uh, in accordance with their previous work habits to see if they are in fact being as productive as they can be. Now, this, this is a regulatory mechanism that is meant to keep people who fall outside or at least appear to fall outside of the limits imposed upon them to kind of impose upon them an, a control, to kind of bring them back into the system. And then finally here, uh, and again, we're still under the organization of genesis, another effective tool they use is to rank the docile bodies to some extent, what, what I'll call the docile bodies here, to rank the subjected people so that you have, you know, supervisors among the people. You have, um, you know, the class head or the 
class leader or, you know, the squad leader or whatever, little things like that that are meant specifically to kind of regulate from the inside so that the other people know that amongst themselves, so not just a kind of what at times might be an abstract, non-present superior, like a supervisor, manager, or something like that. Now they know that among themselves are these kind of police that can rat them out. And then finally here he gives us the fourth one, the composition of forces. So there's a kind of individuality presented here. And again, he gives us the example of the soldier, where we have a soldier with a rifle. And that soldier-rifle dynamic presents an individual enterprise that has internalized all these other forces, internalized all these other processes, sees themselves as being an individual subject that has naturalized that understanding, and can then be, you know, super productive in that way. Now we can contrast this with a previous form of military organization uh, to bring it into pop culture. For anyone that's seen the film 300 with Gerard Butler, um, they present in that movie what's called a phalanx. Now phalanx is when people, uh, soldiers are put in a line with a line of soldiers behind them and a line of soldiers behind them. And what each line does is kind of hold the um, line in front of them forward to kind of keep them sturdy. And so what this is effective at doing is creating a kind of um, rigid, uh, impenetrable kind of fortress of individuals that come together to form a mass. Now what we see here is taking the phalanx apart, making it stubbornly individual. Now there's actually a lot to say about the phalanx, because it's part of my research. Um, historically, the phalanx comes and goes depending on the kind of societal organization that it comes from. So authoritarian uh, authoritarian regimes in, in history, or what we perceive to be similar to that, like with the totalitarian rule, uh, actually eschew, they get rid of the phalanx in favor of more individualistic warfare, which is interesting but it's for another another day so this individuality comes through in a certain uh through a number of ways so they are the people are not measured by their kind of excellence they are not measured by their own the, how they stand above the crowd they are instead measured by what foucault calls their position so th where they exist as their body that they've internalized as being natural their own real uh then becomes their identity so they, by virtue of that, they do not seek to extend beyond that domain. And all of these different individual enterprises have to be organized in a very specific way so that they don't fall outside of that regime. It's no surprise there. Uh, the kind of commands issued towards them have to be clear and brief, lest, you know, people get confused um, uh, so that they would know what to do even if they do not get those demands. So we saw this in the first episode with how punishment was being administered, where if um, the punishment was seen as arbitrary or always random in relation to the crime, people would then not associate their act of the crime with a specific punishment, which proved not to be very effective. And that wraps up here, docile bodies, which puts us into chapter six, titled The Means of Correct Training. Now we're going to get a lot of repetition here and I'm going to try to sift out to make sure that we don't repeat too much, uh, but just a heads up. 
So it's here that he lays out how discipline works. So not necessarily in the production of docile bodies, but what the actual disciplinary mechanism looks like. And it looks it works through three different ways. And they are separation, uh, analysis, and differentiation. So this was essentially accomplished with three instruments, and that was hierarchical, hierarchical observation, uh, normalizing judgment, and um, examination. So in this framework, examination is the product of the first two, which to reiterate are hierarchical observation and normalizing judgment produce examination for Foucault. So number one here, hierarchical, uh, hierarchical, hierarchical observation uh, shows that to be seen is not a good thing, whereas to see shows that you wield power. So the one doing the seeing controls the one being seen. So we see this with various uh, architectural transformations that occurred in the you know 20th century and earlier, like the office space was um, became a space where everyone could see everyone else, uh, where schools were uh, created in such a way as to make people all visible to you know the administration, to the teachers, to anything like that, and so on and so forth. Because that signals to Foucault that the act of seeing gives someone a kind of control. Now this opened up a whole new regimen of uh, control that wasn't reduced or isn't reducible as it was in the past to a kind of single point of power. Suddenly we could see opening up a whole new spectrum of supervisory roles. So you have the teacher supervising, you have the administration, you have the principal, you have the lunch monitors, you have the, in, and I'm talking about the school here, all of these different people kind of take on the role of the ruler. And so it's rendered kind of multiplicitous. It's rendered uh, cellular. It's rendered uh, capillary. That is, it exists. This gaze comes from everywhere and can look everywhere. So it's in this way that we see power moving in so many different directions where anyone takes on this role of the powerful. If, if a student takes on the role of the rat, then they you know wield power, even though previously you know, under the rule of kings, no such person could have that power. They were simply, all people were subjected to the king or queen or whoever's uh, gaze. Now, if you couple that with normalizing judgment, then you produce examination. So what is this normalizing judgment? So with this uh, was introduced a whole new kind of um, understanding about what constituted acceptable and unacceptable activity. So if you internalize that, that is, if supervisory people internalize that, then they're able to regulate, you know, what is considered normal or abnormal. And this doesn't necessarily need to come out in ways like, oh, I'm going to send this person to the principal's office. It can come about through, like, you know, simple judgment, uh, you know, being very, um, being rude, uh, looking down upon people, making comments to people. And this is only exacerbated when we continue consider like the internet, that is the normalization machine, par excellence. But to be truly effective, Foucault says that it must balance punishment and reward. So then you have, I don't know, in school you have the gold star system or something, where if someone acts extremely normal and they follow that rule, then they get, you know, the gold star. And if they amass a certain number of gold stars, then they can have an extra 15 minutes of a break. 
And then with that, people come to then, you know, exalt. They come to strive for these kind of supervisory roles because then they get to be that authority that determines that, which is then seen as a privilege, which is, you know, Foucault says is obviously not great. So with this, we see a kind of simultaneous normalization as well as an individualization where people are seen on their, uh, in their own terms. So someone is recognized as coming from, uh, in the case of the school, from a poor family. And by virtue of that, like they don't have the best food for lunch or they don't have the best clothes or they, maybe they're shy, they're distant from the rest of their, their peers. And so by virtue of that, they are marked. And then, you know, the supervisors recognize that and they say, oh, we know what is wrong with you. What is wrong with you is that you, you know, come from this background. So our duty is to then, having recognized that, uh, prescribe the correct form of control, the correct form of regulation, the correct form of kind of correction to then make you normal again. So it's in this way we see a simultaneous individualization as well as a kind of homogenous endpoint that is normalization that has been established in advance. So that's what this normalizing judgment is. Now that course, um, in addition to hierarchical observation, produces, as I said, examination. Now what is that? What is examination? This is quite simply the act of perpetually examining people uh, and through that kind of discerning how far away they stray from the normal. And then it's through that that they are then prescribe the right mechanism, prescribe the right correction to come back to normalcy. But that examination must be ubiquitous. It must be perpetual. It doesn't just come about like arbitrarily from, um, you know, the king's emissary that comes in and, or the magistrate or something that, you know, tries to dictate how things should be. It happens always and forever. Now, this is very closely tied to this idea of knowledge and power that is so important to the Foucauldian, you know, lexicon. And this operates in three ways. <laughs> you see what I mean? There's list upon list upon list. I hope I haven't lost anyone. We're going to get, we're going to make it through this. Uh, so this produces knowledge and power in three ways or knowledge with power. So number one, visibility becomes an exercise of power, right? As we, as we've said, the act of seeing gives someone a certain degree of power. So historically, that wasn't reserved for anyone except the people in power. Um, and it instead became something that was uh, kind of democratized. And then it is through that a kind of knowledge of the body can emerge or knowledge of the individual can emerge that, you know, the power kind of regulates, mandates. So that's the first way. Now, the second way is through examination that introduces a kind of individuality to that person. So this comes about by having like the person be entered into documents, into ledgers, into uh, 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 spreadsheets, into tables as an individual, you know, person, right? Where on these sheets or on these tables or whatever, they are coded with whatever individual problem they have, which reinforces their individuality, which it, when it becomes natural, then it becomes all the more difficult for them to recognize that that individuality is actually bestowed upon them to control them and that it doesn't just come from the benevolent other. And what it also does is make 
each person a kind of site for knowledge, where each person can be understood in their own way, which then feeds back into those those expert gazes that seeks to expand their discipline. And I don't mean their, uh, I mean discipline like their, their, uh, their, um, their field, like their uh, field of expertise. Because then, you know, you can introduce various new problems, various new mental disorders, like with the DSM, that all seek to kind of find new ways of controlling people, new ways of recognizing what can be wrong with people, and thereby finding new ways to correct people, to bring them back into normalcy. And then thirdly here, this knowledge and power uh, comes about through the documentation and observation just outlined that all works to make the, in his words, the individual a case, where they are their own individual case that needs to be corrected. Now what this does is it validates power's intervention. So the powerful being the psychiatrist, for instance, that can then say, or it, it, this is the process. It sees a person that is abnormal and says, this person needs to be corrected. Only that person, the psychiatrist, who has recognized them, who has kind of diagnosed them, then has the means to, means to correct that person because they recognize something in there that they have created, right? It's something that belongs to their kind of field, to their disciplinary uh, lexicon, to their disciplinary uh, domain. And then it is by virtue of that, if they are effective at quote-unquote curing the person, making them uh, productive for society once again, that they then have recourse to say, look, we work as an institution. Now, there's no point in there when anyone interrogates that very diagnosis in the first place, where people say, or people might refute it and be like, okay, wait a second. Why is there, why do we consider something wrong with the person that, you know, is um, depressed, for example. Like, why is it that we live in a world that says those people who are depressed need to be corrected to fit that world? It's never, what is wrong with that world that makes the people feel depressed? So it transfers the guilt, or the guilt, the responsibility from what might be a messed up world, what might be a messed up system of surveillance, to the individual. Now, all of this logic is extended from these kind of specific zones, like the psychiatrist office, the prison, the hospital, anything like that, onto the general population, where almost everyone is seen as having something wrong with them that can be corrected, that can be improved. If you have a little bit of anxiety, you know, that is something to correct. If you have trouble focusing in class, that is something to correct. If you are someone that likes to party, like that is something to correct, unless you're in university and then it's okay. But the minute you leave it, then it's like, oh, you know, that is something you that we must correct. And it's so arbitrary. It's strange, but it's, yeah. Okay, now the real kicker into chapter seven, panopticism. So he begins this chapter by uh, illustrating a small village being affected by the plague. So if the plague arrived in a town, a few ver various measures were taken to kind of contain it. So um, uh, there was a prohibition to leave the town on pain of death, the killing of all stray animals, the division of the town into distinct quarters, each governed by an intendant. All of these things were meant to kind of control and contain the outbreak. 
So in this moment, the military kind of takes it up it upon themselves to uh, embody a gaze that is meant to kind of keep people in line. So in response to the plague, power instills order. Like it takes things back almost to like a previous form of control. But, you know, don't want to say that too firmly quite yet. But just for now, imagine as being like strict order that is meant to keep people, quote unquote, safe. Now, something interesting happened in response to this kind of order because there emerged a festival, a festival, a festival, what a kind of a locus of anti-order uh, where people could mingle and shed their identity kind of emerged in response to it, which was an interesting thing because surely you'd, that would be a way to spread the disease. But anyways, um, but even more interestingly, Foucault says that people didn't weren't spending each of their days kind of waiting for this festival as a kind of festival festival as a way to kind of sh shed their ordered identity because it also revealed to Foucault that to some extent people really liked the order imposed upon them because it gave them an identity or what he calls uh, a true name a true place a true body a true disease so those people that were considered sick there was, there was something like fascinating about it because they were then seen as this kind of like pure being that was not, was no longer just uh, invisible to everyone else. Like they became a person in that, which is super ironic. But we can see here how there's a kind of um, similarity between how we've been constructing this image around docile bodies with what we are seeing here where people become subjects under a certain order and how that order, you know, gives people a sense of self that they otherwise might not have had. So what this shows to us is that even going so far back as leprosy that Foucault takes some time to talk about, and for those who want more on that, check out his book Madness and Civilization, which I also did episodes of, of here that might be worth checking out. But he contrasts uh, leprosy or the treatment of leprosy with the treatment of the plague here where with leprosy people were just kind of cast out of society you know if you were a leper you were cast out or you were sent to kind of camps where you just sit there pretty much all alone or among other lepers and that produced what he called the kind of pure community where people uh, lepers were people that would be among themselves as lepers which kind of kept them, you know, they weren't individualized in that way. In fact, they were kind of rendered more uh, communal because they were only part of their um, kind of people that had some kind of affinity with them. Whereas with the plague, under a kind of disciplinary mechanism, where each person is kind of quarantined uh, on their own, where they can be uh, checked in by a doctor, you know, repeatedly many times a day or a few times every few days gives them a sense of identity that extends transcends the kind of community that gives them a kind of special identity so the act of being watched gives people both a subjectivity and a lack of subjectivity or or makes them subjected to a kind of gaze and here we enter the panopticon now everyone I'm sure everyone knows about this who's listening to this but for those that might not know 
The Panopticon is a structure produced by Jeremy Bentham that was meant to be a benevolent way to kind of contain people. So Jeremy Bentham saw a problem with how prisons were run because they would uh, they were susceptible to like retaliation, to violence, to um, mutiny, mutiny. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, where what he designed in response to that was a prison where people would supposedly self-regulate. Now, what did this look like? Well, it had a very specific architectural design. So it was a ring. It was a it was a circular structure where within the circular structure, there was a big open courtyard in the middle. So this ring kind of circumnavigated or kind of circumnavigated, circled this center um, kind of courtyard. Now, the cells were placed one on top of the other and then one next to each other on within the ring where the bars of the cell were facing this inner courtyard. Now, in the middle of the courtyard was a, was a watchtower. Now, the watchtower was, was designed in such a way as to make it so that the prisoners, because of various like blinds, wouldn't be able to see the people in the watchtower, but the people in the watchtower could see the people, the prisoners. And every one of the prisoners knew this. So the idea that Jeremy Bentham had was that if people feel like they're always being watched, there doesn't actually need to be anyone in the watchtower. If they feel like there's a chance they're being watched, they will then control their uh, actions. So one of the ways I like to bring this into the you know, present day is the example of someone driving like in the desert, on a, on a street in the desert, and you, know, you come across a, uh, a, a stop sign. And you can see for miles and miles and miles that there's no one around. There's no one anywhere. In fact, you know with 100% certainty you will not get in trouble if you speed through the stop sign. Now, obviously, I can't speak for anyone or for everyone, but many people for some reason stop at the stop sign, which is a very interesting phenomenon. Because if the purpose of the stop sign is to not just to regulate people, but, you know, it... Um, gives off the signal that it is meant to keep people safe because if you stop at the stop sign, you're not going to get into a car accident. If you take on that role yourself of the person keeping yourself safe, that is, you can see for yourself that there's no harm that is going to be done to you by just driving through the stop sign, you still stop because for some reason we have internalized the fact that our own well-being we can't be trusted with it. It has to come from outside, which I think it's a pretty good example of this internalization of a kind of regulation that we come to normalize. So to kind of go back to the panopticon structure, uh, Foucault um, contrasts it with the dungeon. So both are meant to kind of enclose people. That is, both are meant to keep people in cells. Whereas the dungeon is meant to deprive of light and to keep people away from sight, the panopticon is meant to show people and to make them visible, or to make them visible and by virtue of that make them seeable. And it is through that that it produces what he calls homogenous effects of power because it normalizes, while, let's keep it in mind, it also individualizes. 
because it puts people in their individual cell where they are put there for their individual reason. And then maybe, you know, they're given more time for recess or more time for uh, free time, if depending on their crime or whatever. So these mechanisms, that is homogeneity that works alongside normalization, accompanies individuality. So he uses this structure to explain society at large, where the panopticon can be seen everywhere, like schools, factories, anything like that, kind of emulate that, that framework, emulate that structure. Now, what that means is that it can essentially minimize the number of people needed to manage it, because the true panopticon doesn't actually need anyone in the watchtower to be effective. So it can minimize the number of people needed to mandate it to keep it going, while maximizing the number of people it watches, it controls. So that is why it is so effective, because it doesn't need a kind of central operator, which does the uh, dual task of making it really productive, and it also kind of um, absolves anyone of any guilt of being, you know, the person in the watchtower that can be easily identified as, you know, the bad person. And in that way, it is democratically run, which is why Foucault says that that's why no one wants to challenge it, because not only is it so ubiquitous that it's not really recognized, but everyone participates it in one way or another. So the Panopticon does three things that resonate with the other kind of lists presented earlier. So it is meant to make people productive. So if people fear they're being watched and they will be punished if they do not follow the rules, then they know to you know, be as productive as they can so that they don't suffer this punishment, which he says introduces bodies into machinery. Uh, number two, uh, it uh, discipline or the panopticon extends outside of where we might see it, you know, most explicitly like prisons, hospitals, barracks, schools, anything like that, to society at large, essentially in his words, to circulate in a quote-unquote free state. And it is through that that the, that the state is actually able to gain more uh, authority because people are rendered docile. They're less likely to kind of take on a political aim and they're more likely then to follow authority as it manifests itself in more explicit forms like politicians, like presidents or prime ministers or kings or whatever. Um, so in that way, and he makes a very important uh, clarification or qualification here Discipline, as it is indicative of the panopticon, does not replace power as it once existed. It rather kind of infiltrates it, and it makes that power much more effective. And that is because today, we still see a kind of like sovereign system where there are, very, there are people in power, and those people in power should be held accountable. But for some reason, you know, we don't do that because we see the problem as being much more complicated. We see it as being kind of um, molecular, right? Instead of recognizing the specific points of power, which of course doesn't mean that's not true because, you know, uh, men regulating what women are supposed to dress like is a form of power that doesn't happen necessarily by people in authority. Yet it is a kind of panoptic um, mode of surveillance that, proliferates everywhere. So it's in that way there's a simultaneous control happening from everywhere and a very specific control happening from one specific place in many cases, which 
uh, puts people at an impasse because they don't know what to go after, you know, what to challenge. Do they challenge capitalism? Do they challenge the patriarchy? Do they challenge um, Oedipus? Who knows? So interestingly, Foucault says that the Panopticon only really arrives on the scene at a certain point. And he says that it only arrives on the scene when there has been a centralized or when knowledge has become centralized and there is, quote unquote, an authoritarian search for the truth. Now, that's very closely linked to the kind of sciences of the body emerging or the human sciences, where with the more effective ways of understanding the body, could people be controlled? Then you see enter the possibility of the panopticon that knows how to make people productive, which knows how to make people docile, which knows how to make people follow, you know, the rule of normalcy. So it's from here then that we move into the next chapter titled Complete and Austere Institutions. Now this episode is going to go long uh, because I want to get this all done. So try to stick with us here. We'll, we're going to make it through, I promise. So he says here right off the bat that the idea of prison reform is a misnomer, which is, seems strange uh, because, you know, he was someone that advocated for prison reform in his own political life. But he says that it's a misnomer because the prison is always reforming. The prison as an effective mode of kind of controlling people like the panopticon is always adapting because it's always meant to kind of adapt to new trends, to new understandings of what is considered normal, and so on and so forth. Now, it does this so that it isn't seen as a kind of inhumane, totalitarian, rigid structure. In this way, it's seen as more humane, where, you know, televisions become part of normal life. So the prison introduces televisions, or, you know, conjugal visits are introduced, or, you know, whatever. Things that are supposedly give the veneer kind of give the semblance of a kind of humanitarian introduction into the prison that it is anything but it's just an effective way to be more productive but the but the prison still kind of drives at three fundamental principles that keep it afloat that kind of keep it going and is there really any surprise that we get another list here number one isolation is a very important part of it and that is because prisoners will revolt there's the threat that prisoners might revolt if you know they're put together in a room or they're allowed too much time together so you know people are only meant to be together for short periods of time like in their recess or in their breaks uh, and then they are to be sent back to their cells and then number two it also works through work or by uh, instrumentalizing the labor of the prisoners now this is super interesting but when prisons first started uh, prisoners were paid. Prisoners were paid for the labor that they did. It's almost like the United States could take a cue from, you know, the 18th century, but whatever. Uh, they, they were paid, but there were people that opposed that idea, you know, very much like today, like, oh, criminals shouldn't be paid. Like, they should, should have thought of that when they broke the law. But even with people being paid, Foucault is a little bit wary. So he says that sure, this might have some kind of marginal effect on the economy. It might allocate some money to people that, you know, according to the general public, don't deserve it. But Foucault says that what is really effective here and what is really important is the fact that they're working, period. Is, it, is the fact that they're working at all. Because it is the work, not the fact that they're being paid or not, that disciplines them. 
So he says that it doesn't really matter if they're being paid or not because they're still being controlled. And then finally, number three, the prison kind of assumes the status of the modulator of punishment, which means that it controls how and for how long people are to be punished. So this is like what he calls a kind of carceral independence. So the right on part of the prisons to dictate the punishment that people um, suffer, that people are uh, committed to. Now, the way that the prison did this, that is, determine how long people had to be in prison, was to continually draw from kind of bodies of knowledge, like coming out of universities and other kind of studies that would, you know, consider specific cases that would then see people as being, uh, you know, taking those things into consideration to determine how long people would have to be in prison which had a very interesting effect for Foucault, and one that I will say right off the bat is very difficult to understand. And that was the introduction of delinquency as a category in the kind of penal imaginary, which propels us here into chapter 9, titled Illegalities and Delinquency. So here he says that the prison was not just a means to deprive people of liberty. It, It was also meant as a kind of deterrent to future crime. So he gives the example of the chain gang, so people that were uh, working outside of the prisons and that were chained to one another, kind of digging ditches or whatever, um, that Foucault says had the, was intended to kind of make people realize what would happen to them if they committed a crime. So it's kind of like the spectacle of the scaffold from the first episode, from the first half here. So he says that, th- but that presented a problem, like the spectacle of the scaffold, because there was a kind of people... Uh, began to kind of appreciate those prisoners as being workers, which had the uh, reverse effect that was intended. So then from that, people were kind of cast into more obscure uh, kind of working roles. So from there, he kind of jumps to say that prisons, despite their efforts to kind of deter crime, don't actually do that. In fact, almost the reverse is the case where prisons seem to amplify crime. So the most obvious way we can think of this is that people who are convicted of a crime have a very hard time, you know, readapting to society because society views them as, you know, criminal and in need then of a kind of, uh, or not need of anything, in fact, that they don't deserve anything. So that makes them more likely to recommit crimes. Now, what is more, for the criminal who has taken on the status of a kind of delinquent, that is not not someone who can at all be exalted as being, you know, someone who's rallying against, you know, the man, like the criminal, uh, the criminal rallying against power. But the prison kind of births a new way to understand criminals as delinquents who are seen as a nuisance, not as anyone that can be kind of celebrated. You know, they are seen as being someone who is a shit disturber to the social order. So it is by virtue of that that they are the people that the the general public comes to hate. Now, whereas the regicide from the first episode, from the first half right at the beginning, was someone who the people might actually agree with, the delinquent, someone who's now uh, sent to prison for, you know, vandalizing, someone who's sent to prison for stealing, like, bread, for, uh, you know, um, leaving their mark somewhere, someone who's sent to prison for not paying back a fine or something is seen as being um, a nuisance to society at large 
and they have nothing redemptive about them because the the acts that they commit are so kind of petty that the prison at where at one time the prison wouldn't have even bothered with that that kind of stuff suddenly made that the focal point so we see an expansion of the kind of category of criminality to include such petty things that send people you know away for so long like the war on drugs in the united states which is totally it's absurd like sending people to prison for like the possession of marijuana is like the most strange thing ever but these people are not celebrated at all like as criminals as Foucault described it they are just seen as problems for society that need to be fixed or need to just be sent to prison forever so despite the prison's claim to be something that reforms people that corrects them in fact does not have that effect at all so Foucault says how does it actually get away with that how does it get away with claiming to do one thing that is correct people and in many cases do the exact opposite he give and then he gives us an answer to it on 276 to 277 where he says that if this is the case the prison apparently failing does not miss its target on the contrary it reaches it insofar as it gives rise to one particular form of illegality in the midst of others which it is able to isolate to place in full light and to organize as a relatively enclosed but penetrable milieu it helps to establish an open illegality reducible at a certain level and secretly useful at once refractory and docile it isolates outlines brings out a form of illegality that seems to sum up symbolically all the others but which makes it possible to leave in the shade those that one wishes to or must tolerate so it creates a category that it claims only it itself has the way to correct that is delinquency so people then see it as being kind of beneficial institution so it to explain that a little bit more delinquency is ubiquitous right everyone engages in delinquency you know public intoxication like every, so many people have done that and it's like a delinquent crime they can be punished um Foucault says that it the prison then makes those things a threat where at one time people would have been like whatever who cares makes that a threat that the people then internalize as being a threat which then the prison is able to supposedly claim to be able to correct claim to be able to protect people from now because it's ubiquitous the prison cannot actually perform that function so what it has done is kind of sealed its fate as the corrector of a crime that can never be fully corrected thereby sealing its fate to, per, to proceed kind of indefinitely in the service of correcting this thing that can't be corrected and of course of course this is all meant to you know redirect punishment from people that actually have power to people that don't so we think of the you know 2007 2008 financial crash and how few people went to prison for that you know destroying millions of people's lives no one went to prison for that except like one person but you know possessing marijuana sent you to prison for 20 years like Foucault would ask like what is happening here why is this person who's d done nothing wrong the one who suffers punishment because they are considered a delinquent and they are seen as a threat to society because of that whereas the person that has real effect on society because they do not fall under that category can be given a pass because who cares 
Who cares? It's a once. It doesn't happen all that often. It's not everywhere. I don't see it all the time. It's not the uh, homeless person um, asking for money that really pisses me off. You know that that person who doesn't have the means to pay to have you know a place to live is the problem because you know we see it all the time. We don't see the bankers that are screwing over everyone, so we forget about it, and the prison capitalizes on that forgetting, and then reaffirms itself by casting those people that are without power into those spaces, into the prison. And of course, within that, the police serve an instrumental function in maintaining that. They are the regulators, they are the, the executioners of the prison system. So there's no surprise that there were resistances to this uh, prison formulation because some groups saw exactly what was going on. Like certain Marxist reformists were like, yeah, you know, this is just a way for you to uh, divert attention from the bourgeois onto the poor people. Or anarchists saw this as being a way to kind of go after people without power to better control them, ostensibly. Uh, so there was, you know, resistance here, which is just worth mentioning because he kind of adds that, you know, uh, tacks it on to the end. And here we get to the last chapter. So bear with me, we're almost there. This is titled The Carceral. So he suggests that the carceral system um, was kind of first emblematized in the 1900s, in the mid-19th century, with uh, the Matre, was titled, or Matre, uh, Penal Colony in France. So the carceral system is like a system of complete, total surveillance and control. And this colony that he describes here in Matre was um, the kind of ideal form of penality because it embodied the coercive technologies of behavior so it had within it it had a kind of family dynamic a school dynamic a military dynamic a hierarchical dynamic a juridical dynamic a, a, uh, a working dynamic that were all in the service of maintaining a kind of equilibrium within that state that an equilibrium of docility and he says that there's is it really is there really any surprise that uh, scientific psychology kind of emerged around that time where people, oh, how convenient. We have all these people in this space who don't fit inside the realm of society at large. Therefore, there must be something wrong with them. Let us begin to ask them questions. Let us begin to find out what it is that is wrong with them. And then from there, you see the emergence of attempts to understand the psyche. And then he finishes off here with one more list that outlines the implications or the kind of effects of transposing this form of penality onto the social body at large. So the first one is that it, it extends its logic into all domains of life, where every irregularity is cataloged and tries to be corrected, uh, and essentially linked the punitive and the abnormal. So people who were abnormal were the ones to suffer uh, a punitive punishment. And then in response to this abnormality, like the punishment, um, all the institutions that emerged to kind of correct it were inexorably tied to, or inextricably linked to uh, kind of economic situations. So a certain amount of wealth was required to erect these structures that would then primarily inflict its gaze, its kind of punishment onto people without wealth. Then it naturalized this punishment it made people think that they were deserving of the punishment if it befell them. 
and it made people who saw other people being punished them think that the people being punished deserve that punishment. Now, this normality also gave birth to another kind of thing, and that was the inextricable link between legality and nature. Where there were kind of natural explanations for this, supposedly, like you know, uh, you break the laws of nature, and nature's going to bite back, like it's going to hurt you. So, if you can kind of introduce that narrative into the juridical system then you find a very excellent way to judge it or to, to validate it because people who've, through a kind of knowledge process, have internalized nature as being real, being universal, being natural, then by inscribing that same narrative onto the juridical system, those the, that same juridical system is then able to be universalized, naturalized. So then this gave birth to... Uh, the normalized examination of people, like prisoners, like people considered mentally ill, uh, which then birthed the kind of scientific ex um, examination or investigation of the human, birthing the human sciences. And then the, finally, it renders the prison, uh, the, the prison becomes immovable. It, through all this, these processes, through its naturalization, it becomes unquestionable. And that pretty much comes finishes us off here, where he gives us a kind of final remark that um, prison has essentially, through this process, has come to stand in for what justice can be. Where Foucault almost asks us to, you know, wonder, how else can we imagine justice? How else can we imagine, you know, even penality? Like, why is it that we have come to kind of naturalize, you know, justice and its link to the prison? where he gives us all the examples of how things were so much different at so many different times. But yeah, so that pretty much wraps that up. Uh, and for those that listened, thanks. I hope I was of some help. Um, and if not, you know, you know how to leave it. Um, be sure to check in every Saturday at noon. I'll be back with something else uh, to try to keep the, you know, knowledge train.